Hey, you're listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and this is episode 54. And today we're going to be talking about sociology, ethnography, and why it is important for the church. Let's do this! Hey everybody, thank you guys so much for joining in on this conversation today and we're excited to hear from different perspectives and to kind of dialogue on this. And we have a very special guest coming to us all the way from Calgary. This is going to be a great, great time. As always, Bernard and Shu are here. What's going on? Yo, yo. Hey. Hey, hey, hey. Yes. And our special guest is Scott Wall. Scott, how's it going? Going great. Yes, we're doing this over Zoom and we're using emojis because this is the way we communicate now. This is the new normal. <laughs> this is where we live. That's right. You know what, Scott, for our listeners' sake, would you introduce yourself a little bit, who you are, and why we are talking today? I think this is a pretty interesting story of how we got connected together and why we're having this conversation. Yeah, sure. I currently live in Calgary. So I'm right up against the Rocky Mountains and moved here about four years ago. work at a church called Commons Church uh, at our Inglewood Parish, a small community in the heart of Calgary, and thoroughly enjoying this work. Uh, But prior to moving out here and becoming a minister, I worked for about 10 years in an academic career. So I pursued, I thought I was going to be a biblical scholar initially, so I did my MA in first century archaeology anthropology at the University of British Columbia, specifically looking at how Mark's gospel puts Jesus in houses all the time and how I sort of thought there was political sort of intrigue in the way that Mark presents Jesus there. We can talk about that another time. (laughs) One of the interesting things is from there, part of what shifted me into my doctoral work was the fact that I was doing some teaching and none of my students cared about the history of religion, nor did they care about the ancient world. They just cared about what they saw either people in their family doing or what they saw, you know, I, they, one of the questions I remember getting is like, I just saw a bunch of people outside the synagogue, you know, two weeks ago. What, what's, what's going on with that? And so I ended up doing all this sort of contemporary contextualizing for my students, mm-hmm. which got me reading about religion and ethnicity here in Canada. Specifically, there's a, there's a book called Religion and Ethnicity in Canada, and it looks primarily at minority traditions and or smaller or newer immigrant communities. And uh, one of the co-editors of that volume uh, became my PhD supervisor. I did my PhD at the University of Waterloo. And that work is why I'm sitting here chatting with you guys, because I've been looking for communities to do my PhD research with. And the way that I had initially conceptualized the project is I was actually hoping to do what I would call like sort of a second generation experience comparison. So I was hoping to find either a Korean or a Chinese community to do work with. I, in my early 20s, I had worked in Toronto with Caribbean Canadian communities, done mm. a bunch of work uh, with a national organization working with youth, Jane and Finch area, Upper Etobicoke. And I was curious about, you know, oh, what would happen when I take this body of research? Because there's so much work on Korean and Chinese uh, communities in the, in the States. It's like, oh, it'd be really interesting to, A, get some more Canadian data for that, and then compare it with a completely different cultural group. 
okay, that's a ridiculous idea. It would have, ta- it would have taken a team of researchers. So while I was trying to build some relationships to do research with, I uh, came across the English-speaking Chinese ministerial, and I got connected to it through um, Daniel Wong at Tyndale. I mm. just I was just like cold emailing people saying, you know, I'm looking to do this work. And so they invited me in. And I, I mean, that ministerial, they were so kind to me. They just brought me in, and I just started going to meetings every month. That's where I heard they were doing fundraising for Urbana and and, and many of these people were like, oh, that's what you're doing? You need to do this. You, you got to go to Teens Conference. You got <laughs> you to you go to Urbana. So I was like, well, okay. So here's the story. Uh, right after Christmas, right at the end of 2012, I get on a bus in Kitchener. A uh, bus that's primarily, it's, it, almost all the people on it were from uh, T3C. But it is one of about... 20 buses that are coming from the GTA. So we start heading down the 401 and we head into a blizzard. And so we start, we sort of get caught in this and we stop at one of the en route sort of kiosk areas. Right. Yeah. And I mean, we've all been in these, they, um, in the middle of the day, they can be sort of like bustling, everybody's stopping, grabbing something, but it's like midnight. Right. So we're, I'm just thinking I'm going to go in, I'm going to get a coffee. So I trudge across the parking lot. I go in and the entire en route is, filled with young Chinese Canadian evangelicals on their way to this conference. <laughs> and I, I, first of all, I was just like, okay. Like I knew I was on a bus like this and I kind of had a, like I had a sense of what was happening, but I'd never had this sort of sense because it was loud in there. Like it's like midnight. Everybody's like, everybody seems to know each other. I was like, how do all these people know each other? Six degrees. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've got- <laughs> two degrees of separation. <laughs> See, and this, I mean, Guys, this is, this is the essence of what I, I actually think it's what's missing in some of the study in Asian American communities is the, the networks that surround congregations. So you can do congregational analysis, but this is immediately I'm, I was just struck by these people seem to know each other from a couple of different places. And I'm watching leaders from organizations that I would come to know and become really familiar with. I'm watching them go from table to table, and they're just sort of connecting people. And then, interestingly, I, I, was, sorry, I was standing at the door because the line for coffee was so long. So I'm like, I'm not getting coffee. I'm just going to stand here. <laughs> and I watched, <laughs> I watched these people who, like, just other Ontarians trying to, like, get in and get a coffee. And they just sort of, like, come in and they look at the door like, what the is going on here? <laughs> Because it's like jammed full. Like it, it's like there's a conference happening in an en route and they just like, they give up. They just walked away. And then, oh, and then of course, then I go spend, you know, a week at Urbana. And I had, I had some connections with um, some of the communities that were there. And I just had some congregations. I also, ultimately, I would have been happy to do, I could have just done my dissertation on the Urbana experience. Like, it's interesting to me that nobody's done this. Because uh, Urbana is a crazy cultural phenomenon in part because it's changed so much in the last 10 to 15 years. Sure. There is some good work done on this, but not nearly enough, not nearly enough for something that is. And I, as somebody who thought I kind of knew the evangelical landscape, I'd never heard of Urbana and I certainly had never been. So then I went and I, Oh man. So I was just sort of struck by this and that sort of gave me, eh, gave me sort of, it pushed me into my research. I started my interviews for my dissertation, uh, interviewing some people post Urbana. Uh, mm-hmm. I spent about four months just talking to people who had been there, and some of those people ended up in my samples. So it'd be interesting to also do something on like the Asian loitering experiences, like post church, post fellowship, like during Urbana. Like there's so much of this kind of like let's hang out in the lobby, and then right. let's decide for like two hours where we're going to have uh, lunch or snack, whatever. <laughs> that that's a phenomenon too. 
Right. And that's good. I actually, I described my experience. I spent about six months going to as many gatherings and meetings and stuff at at a a Chinese congregation in Toronto. And I described that experience. Like the lobby, the lobby is the essence of what sort of a trilingual congregation is, the way it feels, the way it sounds, what it looks like, especially when there's a confluence of the congregations, Uh, people are coming and going. And I know not every church is like that, but I've been in enough to know that that's, there's, there's something about that experience. And specifically, we're going to talk about English-speaking Chinese congregations in Toronto. That's one of the few places I saw the congregations actually together, is in mm-hmm. that, like, figuring out, some people are coming to church, and they, you know, where are we going to do lunch? And then some people are leaving to go do lunch, and it, it takes forever to get out of there. Um, <laughs> It's, I mean, it's, it's brilliant. And I, I don't, I don't think anybody's done any work on it, but anyways. You know what? Maybe someone listening to this episode is going to be inspired and sparked. And there's like, I'm already experiencing that. I want to research and understand that more. The other reason why we are so excited to talk with you is because you're coming it from a sociological perspective. You're also Caucasian. And so you are coming from a different lens, which actually is refreshing because you know, it does kind of give us another perspective, which I think is, is very valuable. And the last part about it is that, you know, as you're doing your research and you are filing together all your information, you're identifying different factors, you're, you know, you're using specific terminology to kind of help us to understand what are some of the things that are going on right here. And I think it's valuable. I think it's it's been it's been really cool to see some of the points that you talk about. For me, the learning about ethnographic research in churches is if anything just like we don't have ethnographers in church we just have a lot of people like you would assume things or the leaders are just like okay i'm just going to lead you in this direction without really capturing maybe the narratives of what's going on to get a better sense and then you can also if you want to do a theological kind of slant on it what is the spirit doing within you know people's lives and whatnot and i think as much as I don't know, like, I don't know if you feel your work was specifically gauged toward that vert, or you're like, no, I just want to make sure I'm being very as objective in the study as possible, at least towards the, the school's kind of standards or something like that. Or did you feel like it was actually something I brought this back as a tool for the church? Right. One of the things you said there piques my interest because you said something about how like there isn't a lot of ethnographic work done in churches. Sorry, in the Chinese Canadian church. Oh, I see what you're saying. The Chinese Canadian church specifically. Yeah. Oh, chi- okay. Certainly. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually think that good pastors and good pastoral theology and praxis is rooted in the same kinds of tenets as ethnographic research. And, and I think that sometimes the people best suited to to comment on some of what they broadly see in a community. It's, it's the, the sort of intangible you work you do as a pastor. You're paying attention, you're listening, you kind of have an inkling of something that might be happening. You, you see or feel or sense something that's behind the scenes in either in a person's life or in your broader community. And that's effectively, like, ethnography is, is meant... It, it forms your capacity to listen. And I, to me, I just see a really close relationship between that and pastoral work. And I say that as somebody who's now for, well, four years into trying to figure out what being a pastor means. <laughs> uh, and and, and I, I feel like it's just about listening and, and trying to be intuitive. 
you know, then there's lots of parts of our job that have nothing to do with that. But that, <laughs> like ethnographic research and pastoral work, there's a ton of similarity between these practices. And I'd love to talk. That's another episode. Let's do it sometime. Specifically some of like my intent in the project, because I've had, even in the feedback phase, I've had some people sort of reach out and say, sort of like, what do we do now? And sociologists don't ever or shouldn't ever make those kinds of comments in their research. Your goal is never to prognosticate. You can sort of theorize and you can sort of hint at, but the goal isn't to tell anybody what they should do. Let's just start with that. What is, do you feel is the core of your research and what did you hope people would get out of it? One of the things that I was, the longer the project went on, I felt I was doing, and I don't, I name in the the thesis, but I I wanted to provide an alternative narrative to the hemorrhaging faith report because I think the hemorrhaging faith report, and I said as much in the English speaking, the ministerial, uh, they spent a year or two sort of carrying that report around, interacting with what it meant. And I remember saying at the first meeting, there is no ethnic diversity. There's, (laughs) There's no, there's no accounting for any sort of ethnic markers in this project. Yes, sir. So why are you stressing? about something that doesn't even talk to you, right? And I said that. Now, I felt like, let's stop talking. Like, there is a broader sociological reality currently in Canada. Demographically, an unprecedented number of young Canadians claiming no religious affiliation. You guys are probably aware of the broader, like, an evolving research on what we call religious nuns. That's the thing. And actually, if you look at the Chinese-Canadian community, the vast majority of Chinese Canadians in like that are young would claim no religious affiliation. Okay. So that's, that's out there. That's true. But again, that's not everybody. And also what kinds of religion are flourishing and growing and innovating and adapting and creating. That's a really interesting question because still more than 60% of this country's population identifies as being Christian, like on a, on a census. And so you have to try and like sort of take all these narratives and you have to sort of like, okay, wait, how do I look at this accurately? And so that's part of why I was like, okay, great. Hemorrhaging faith sort of shows some of the factors that lead young adults to continue on and be heavily involved. That's great. I just didn't, I I felt like one of the ways, especially as I encountered the Chinese Canadian community in Toronto, I was like, like, this is an, it's at least one kind of variation of an alternative. So if you, if you go to, say, the conclusion of my thesis, where I try to just say, actually, I think there's a bunch of different ways in which people, young adults in the GTA, are sort of combining a sense of religious affiliation and a sense of ongoing connection to the Chinese community in this city. There's lots of ways people are doing this. And some of them are committed in their attempts to help these communities to adapt. Some of them are heavy in their critique. Sometimes people are heavy in their critique and they're not going anywhere. Like, I, I think it's profound work that you guys are doing. I, I really do. It's just another example of this attempt to pull these things together. But I would not presume to say this is, this is the only way forward. Well, I can, I can give you one. Uh, <laughs> Go for it. Do it. My work, uh, somebody said, well, like, what would, you, what would you tell like leaders of Chinese churches today? I was like, well, you got to be more conservative. That's one of the tendencies. There was a latent tendency in my, in my sample. And of course, it's, it may just be my sample. To Double down. down. Right. And then, of course, drawing on strong American evangelical subculture and its voices to do that work. 
And I didn't see that coming. It, it is still something that I, I was like, wow, I, you know, like all these, you know, all these people who, who I became friends with and they're all listening to an old white guy from Minnesota. Like I just, <laughs> like, like, is there not somebody other than John Piper who could shape our imagination for what the kingdom of God looks like in the world? And that's not because I hate John Piper, but it does mean that I, I don't think that Jonathan Edwards is the way forward into the kingdom of God. I can say that. <laughs> <laughs> Man. There's also the skinny jean, you know, right. like with the beard and the tattoo pastor right. too. Right. <laughs> which, yeah. which are influenced by John Piper, but... Well, like Carl Lentz, who like Carl in New York, he's not quoting John Piper. No. But, but I also don't know, like, I don't think that... Does Carl write books? I don't think he does. If Carl did write books, I'm not sure those are the books that, a, you know, a young third-year engineering student who's like leading at CCF in, in Toronto and like, growing in their sense of what it means to lead the kingdom of God. I, they don't need to read Carl Lentz. And, and actually with that, I don't think the people, <laughs> this is my, my sort of prejudice coming in. The people who would follow Carl Lentz are not exactly the readers, I would say, either. Like, there's other ways I think the next gen is consuming content and, right. and trying to learn and, and process. So, so actually, it, as you share this kind of, kind of core, you feel, of, of the stuff that, that you were researching and that, that came out, I just found it fascinating. So here's just some of kind of coming from your thesis. You bring out this this quote from Christian Smith about uh, evangelicals in North America trying to maintain the social cohesion by it's how they renegotiate their collective identities by revising how their orthodoxies engage the changing sociocultural environments they confront. So nice, you know, academic spiel, but essentially you're saying they're trying to navigate, renegotiate this tension of I'm. Chinese Canadian evangelical I was brought up this way, but then now I'm trying to see how I could do it different. Like you're saying differently from my parents. And then there's like, at least for you, it, it, it led to you to, to kind of organize uh, the respondents or, or what you saw like into five kind of groups that, right. that engaged in those ways, which I found really those five broad categories are, are money. Like it was just like, <laughs> I, I, I haven't heard it framed that way. So I found it. One is separation. Those who, leave their, you know, religious community, detach themselves from the ethnic communities. I'm not Chinese. Just qualify with that one. Let's, we can do these just as you're doing them. Cool. Well, I, and I think I say, like, I, I didn't talk to anybody who is in this category. I'm, yeah. I'm, a, I'm, it's an imagined category. And, you know, I had some pushback from my, from my advisor and others who had read the work. They said, like, there are people in this category, Scott. Like, don't, don't say, oh, I think there might be. There's people, but it's specifically, I pull away from my religious experience in the Chinese Canadian community. And I also distance myself from a sense of connection to my, either the heritage of my parents or broader Chinese culture. There's lots of ways to describe that, but it's both those things. Yeah. And so definitely, I, I agree, and uh, like I don't know a lot, but I do know a few who who fit right. in this kind of category. And then okay. the second one you talk about, and you can you know respond to each one. Uh, parallel attachment, uh, leaving the ethnic parent church, join this multicultural or, or g- generic evangelical churches, and they're you know they're ones who are critiquing Chinese culture because they're like that's you know we're doing we're too Chinese culture formed, and we want to be true pure kind of evangelical or true to the gospel form of Christianity. So it's like, there's this parallel attachment, but like, yeah. Okay. So parallel attachment. Yes. And actually you had one interesting note there too, which I found fascinating is that they don't actually separate from their social network of other Chinese Christians. Right. And they, they, 
but they keep they keep that ethnic identity, but they're so still like, yeah, I'm I, I'm going to leave this this yeah. ship and, and go to another one. And right. So th- and this is again sort of direct contrast or trying to nuance the language of silent exodus, where people would tell me, and this is the only reason I found this data is because people would say, yeah, our young adults are leaving, so well, where are they going? Oh, they're just like going to other churches. Okay, like where? And as you, if you read my thesis carefully, I think. Anybody who knows the GTA and knows the Chinese Canadian community, when I describe the two churches that I went and did research at, you know who I'm talking about. They didn't want me to, they, they didn't want me to name them, but everybody knows which two churches they are. Because when I went there, I find, oh, there's a Chinese Canadian community here. And what's interesting is when you talk to them, so many of them are still helping to lead and help shape and they're passionate about what's going on in the evangelical subculture in the Chinese Canadian community. So that that's the parallelism. They're sort of like, I'm doing this other thing, but I'm still like, still love all these people still actually really care, still actually really passionate about helping to like lead in it. So, anyway. so, so just one story, like shortly after my wife and I concluded our ministry in my past church, we went and kind of visited some churches in Toronto and we visited probably one of those churches that you may have mentioned. And when we got in there, it's like there's this giant subculture of, you know, Chinese evangelicals and then a giant subculture of Korean evangelicals. We're like, <laughs> I know all those people. And she's like, oh, I know all those people. And they're like, they still play in the CCSA softball league. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I think they play in the KCSA softball league. So, <laughs> Yeah, which is an important thing to name, right? Like even for me, g- generally... They're people who have left uh, my church and they've gone to particular, you know, one of those two particular or three particular churches. But yet, fascinatingly enough, they go to these churches for worship and for some connection. They go back to, to their home churches for small group. Yeah, that, which, which is totally true. What's interesting is when I was doing my research, I saw, and oh, it'd be interesting to like try and figure this out a little bit. I saw a little bit of the opposite happening where specifically the the downtown congregation that I name uh, in in my thesis, they had an over hundred percent attendance rate for their for their home groups. And by that I mean more people were attending home groups during the week than attended Sunday services. Mm-hmm. And in large part, they were attributing this to we'll just talk about probably people who may have landed in my sample, 18 to 35 year old Chinese Canadian evangelicals. They're going to church on Sunday uh, at their uptown church and at the church they grew up in. And, but then they're, they're seeking like, they're seeking just maybe robust theological conversation that they feel, right? It's, yeah. uh, it, was, it was sort of the opposite. Too, uh, like, but, I, but I wouldn't doubt if there's a bit of a continuum there. No, no, for sure. Both, both ends, both, both ways that you're Anyways, saying. We've done two. Okay. Third group, critical attachment. Yes. Those who appreciate Chinese culture, heritage, but also note the compromise of evangelical values. So they're similar, but then, and, but then they specifically often use American evangelical authors to critique and want to reform their congregations. And then they, at the end, will say, we'll leave if you know, there's not any change. Right. That's, that's a pretty good description. Um, these, <laughs> people, these people who are drawing on theological ideas, but then also drawing on this is where anthropological research is so interesting. They're drawing on like tone, like the way we preach. They're starting to mirror sort of 
American presentation styles. It's so intriguing to me. Like I had some people say, you know, this particular, like I already named John Piper. So I'll just, uh, as an example. So Piper has a very particular communication style and it's one that is pretty, it contrasts pretty heavily from what you would experience in a Chinese Canadian congregation, certainly in the first generation. And then in second generation, eh, it depends on, on the church. And again, I'm relying on, if you're not familiar with Erica Muse's work on Chinese congregations in Boston, she actually does like anthropological sort of research on like presentation and tone and the positioning of your body. That's where this category came from because, you know, I, I, I would go and I would talk to people and they would be talking to their, they'd be talking about their experience in a church and being like, it sounded like Mark Driscoll or, you know, I was just like, we, 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 what? Anyway. And I'm kind of curious, like, I wonder what, 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 and if there's any changes within this category over the last couple of years, especially with what's happening down in the States and some of the m- main or like major speakers that have kind of gone through like, you know, like heavy things that have happened and even like, yeah. you know, so those who have kind of committed suicide and given their lives up, right? Like we're part of this group. And I just wonder like how it will impact, you know, this not yeah. to use categorization of people. So one one thing that I was very appreciative of your the limitations you spent said at the end of your work was that you couldn't get into the more specific seeing the other paths that some of the Chinese Canadian you know ex- exiting even you know uh, Christians yeah. were taking and some of them have become either more mainline progressive or you know like it is a different there's different influences more than ever now I would say yeah. Like, and, and, and Bernard's question is a good one. Like, so, so if you look at, like, I, I just named Mark Driscoll. Mark Driscoll's not on the landscape. I mean, I, he's, he, I mean, he still is, but not in the way that he was in 2010. And what's interesting is that, I, like, I would talk to people who would critique Driscoll, too. Like, they would critique, you know, when he came up and did a conference that a bunch of people had gone to, they critiqued the way that he had talked about masculinity. Like, I, I talked to with some really thoughtful people who critique those sources as well. But then if you look at even uh, like the dissolution of like Harvest Bible Chapel Network, which it, which is, that's like a pretty huge the way that it was basically developing up the 401 corridor and the, you know, like some of those changes, you're right. I think that you know, that's why research is almost always just like a micro, like it's just like I snapped a photo Snapshot. and now some of those people aren't in the photo anymore, but this is this like two but but like but John Piper still like does a podcast still still writes articles about how women shouldn't teach still like that's still a thing in the world that that some people are drawing from and I would I would assume that that's still it's still in play for lots of people anyway like when when we talked back then like I was definitely influenced by and I I am I will still you know show my show my biases and cards that. I was definitely influenced by a certain range of American authors in the missional thinking and, and, but then to further study, further kind of acknowledge what's going on and getting more nuanced in, in your theological leanings and actually even understanding too better that everyone comes from somewhere, that their traditions and their, the way that they, they've learned comes from somewhere. It's not just like Piper is, you know, like you said, Jonathan Edwards and then Jonathan Edwards influenced by a certain way of thinking but the thing is, like, in, in Chinese-Canadian culture at times, it was almost like people almost assume it came from scratch or something. It just, it just popped up. But then once that epiphany comes in and then, and then younger people were like, wait a second, even my pastor doesn't really know where that stuff came from. Right. So I think that's where, you know, we got hit with that. And 
systematic theology, actually, I was going to say that when you talk about snapshots, systematic theology, someone who created the system of thought is a snapshot of a particular yeah. uh, theology or tradition. Yeah. So it's like, it's okay to, uh, to yeah. communicate where that's coming from. But right. what we get shot from is when I think, okay, and this is now prognosticating a little bit, is we get shot as pastors thinking, I think maybe this is an, an uh, Asian or Chinese thing specifically, I have to get it right. And then my congregation will really follow and, and fully commit or something. But it's, mm-hmm. I think in the Canadian kind of end of our kind of subculture, we're also going, no, it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to respond and be authentic about stuff you don't know. Mm-hmm. And you're, and that's even why this, this, this uh, podcast is up. We're trying to dialogue and we're trying to create these conversations and, and grow together. So good. I think we're on the fourth one, engaged maintenance, where these Chinese, uh, Canadian evangelicals, they're, they're competent in Chinese language. They have longstanding con- uh, connection to those English-speaking people in the Chinese congregations, people who can actually speak English. And uh, they have a deep appreciation for the Chinese heritage, and they maintain strong commitment to help uh, the Chinese-Canadian church still. So you have this group more on that side of the spectrum. Yep, yep. Certainly saw... So, and again, like, that's a good example of, like, pushing back against silent exodus, just pushing for just more nuance in how we understand data, how we understand communities. And, and then the last one, which you said was rare as well, this is like the almost other side of the spectrum from separation, but generative attachment that this group sees still, of course, admits there's a tension between first and second gen, but they're far less, far less antagonistic. Instead of antagonizing, they want to see... The Chinese Canadian Church Ministries generates greater levels of social engagement, justice work in the neighborhood, and they're not really tied to this American evangelicalism influence. That's a person who's probably read more Shane Claiborne than John Cooper, ah. for example. Or and and like to Bernard's point earlier, when you look at like even something as, as simple as this moment we live in now, where there's protests happening all over the world. Even like one of the things that I've sort of been sensitive to when I think about the impact of like the politics of identity in COVID and how people within the Chinese Canadian community have either been marginalized or discriminated against in response, right, to these perceptions of, A, where's the virus coming from? Who's weaponizing what? Like all this craziness. And I just think of like friends that I have. The, the role that those kinds of experiences might play now in shaping identity um, and mobilizing young Chinese Canadians for political engagement or awareness, there's a, there's a few things going on there. And like, like we've said already, like today, if you took the picture, it, there's maybe going to be some different factors. Yeah, I, I found those categories really, for me, a bit enlightening that I could now finally kind of understand, oh, this is kind of a little bit better where I can not just label people, but the place where certain people were at. And right. to, I think one of the conversations we're having with some other Chinese uh, church leaders, especially, I don't know if, if, if I don't know if you've been pay, like, keep, keeping up tabs with, with the Chinese church, but there are some uh, Chinese churches that now have second gen pastors now in place. And they're trying to have these conversations with what does it look like now? What is the evolution of this Chinese Canadian church look like? And, and how do we, you know, quote unquote, move forward. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Where, where do you see, like as a missional podcast, where do you see, what are the streams of Christian spirituality? What are the streams of Christian theology that are shaping that? Because that would be an example of like generative work. So 
How do we stay attached? How do we generate new forms? How do we innovate? Well, who, who and what and where are they drawing from? That will give you, like, again, that's just really good. That's a good way of kind of saying, okay, well, where is this going to sort of lead? I don't know, man. Like, we're kind of all over the place. Like, we're, we're, so I'm, I'm part of a church plant-ish. Uh, well, we don't, my, my tribe don't think we are a church plant anymore um, because we've <laughs> been around for so long. Um, but we've kind of drawn from like a plethora of different spirituality, but I think a lot of it is still kind of rooted in our own tribal history of like more the holiness movement, but because like some of our pastors have a more liturgical background. So we lean in on some of the liturgical stuff, but we're also like, because our heart is for what engaging, um, our neighborhood with the presence of God. So we, we, we actually end up like without knowingly become Anabaptists in our approach. Yeah. Um, so, so, so I don't know, like for our church, it's a little bit different because we just have a lot of different people with different theological leanings and we're comfortable with that um, to have differences in theology. So, Which even that description, so a description of uh, plurality, that's a particular stream. Several other Christian traditions have sort of defined themselves by strong regimented boundary making, which is what I would argue increasingly, as I study evangelicalism historically, that's sort of, I'm coming to a place like, and that's maybe one of the ways that I would say I'm not evangelical because evangelicalism by definition is defined by opposition. It's, you got to find what you're opposed to, and then you define yourself by that. Like who's in and out? Certainly that, but then like, again, if you're interested in the work of Reinhold Niebuhr going back into the early or mid 20th century, he wrote a book called... Price. No, no, no. It's, it's There's two Niebuhrs. Oh. <laughs> the Social Sources of Denominationalism, I think, something to this effect, which points to how effectively if you go more or less anywhere here in North America in the 19... Yeah, or first half of the uh, the 20th century denominationalism or knowing which tribe you were part of, that was the primary organizing principle for the entire society. So it broke down, are you Protestant or are you Catholic? That was most people. And then of course, Protestantism splintered, 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 and uh, was defined by hyper differentiation where the only way you knew what you were is like, how many distinctives do you have? And then how many does that person have over there and where do they line up and where do they not? This is not where we live currently. Um, Denominationalism no longer serves more or less any purpose uh, in social construction. Like it's still, people still mobilize denomination, but they do so to their, for themselves, not to actually influence the culture doesn't actually help them get out into the world yeah i was just gonna say like i echo that because i think denominations have very little meaning if anything is meaning more for the christians for some it's more like the tribal boundaries that they want to kind of inherit and carry or traditions or like for some like they even say it like i wanted to find a fraternity of churches that i can kind of be a part of but others who are like they, they they enter into a denomination not even knowing what the denomination is about like i was talking with the church and then they were telling me that they were part of this denomination it's like do you know that you're southern baptist they're like we are <laughs> i'm like yeah like 
this is your tribe, man. Um, and they were, they had no idea. Um, yeah. Two things about what you just said there, which is interesting. I found Scott is well, well, one is that well, when you guys talk about that, I'm like, it's like ideologies that are holding people together. This, this I'm Bible believing, but then you got to communicate what that means. But <laughs> it's usually this used as a blanket statement, evangelicalism. I'm, I'm Bible believing. We hold scriptures highly, but to what does that mean? What is your theological undergirding of that? Right. The second thing I found what you said about, I, I think the way that, let's say Tim Keller, Redeemer to Re- City to City, their method is, I think they're, they're using Kuiper, Kuiper's, Abraham Kuiper's way of trying to, let's, we want to push out our brand or our denomination to influence and impact the culture, large culture, so that it looks more like Jesus' kingdom, or at least the way that they say it. And that's one way of th- them trying to say that. So that's why like, I find that it's not that they don't believe that they're, they're trying to influence the culture. I don't know if they're successful at it, but they, they believe they are. They believe they're, they're using that mechanism to, like, we're really going to make God's kingdom, you know, come or, or something. So I, I find that that's the, that's, that's what the guy would respond that I think they still think they are. They're, they're influencing the culture or something at large. Right. Or they're bearing witness. Yeah. Back to what you were saying, like there was a splintering of like, you know, the, 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 the denominations. And I wonder if like we're experiencing like another splinter, which mm. is more like, like a more like, are we going to go deeper into our tribal identity or like I'm going to completely remove myself from any kind of traditional denominational background backings? Um, I don't know. Just I wonder like if that is a potential reality of where we are. I mean, I am part of a tradition and then also part of a community that I'm actively, and then again, this sort of now moves beyond my research. I'm interested in moving the other way. I'm interested in the confluence of tradition, which is why Bernard, the way you framed your community. So if you, which, yeah, you framed your community as being comfortable with difference, drawing from multiple places to be, to be frank, I think that's the only honest way to live in the world because that's just true. To try and constrain community to a, a uniform representation, and maybe you've heard it said this way, but like the greatest evils done by the Christian church, big C church, have always been when it has, not when it has allowed people to read the scripture, interpret it, and apply it independently and in a, and in a pluralistic way. It's when it has tried to constrain doctrine and dictate it, the greatest evils of the church have been done in an environment where it's dictating. And I don't, I'm not trying to make it sound like dictatorship. I just mean when it says, this is the way it is. This is, um, even when you think about something as the historical creeds, the historical creeds are always said in chorus. They're said not a, like, or at least I would argue the way we should experience them is from a, like an ecclesiastical diversity of way we all come to this place and it's the confluence of our experiences we affirm the oneness of god we see in jesus but we 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 acknowledge that we're all very different people in this room it's not it's not a a dictate like the creeds don't say you have to say it this way i i always hear it as like it's the great chorus of the church joining in all of its diversity and affirming the oneness we see in christ which okay so now we're leaning very heavily i mean this is heavy lifting for two o'clock on a Wednesday. Great stuff, man. <laughs> right. But that's my personal leaning. I, I, I want to apply this. I want to say, okay, so what's it like being in communities like the ones that you guys lead in and work in? Here's, here's the cutting edge for the Chinese Canadian community. 
there's ongoing migration that's mobilizing the church in Canada to continue to try and reach and impact and help and advocate, do social engagement for basically a perpetual growth factor that's just there. The catch is that it is a multi-ethnic, so the majority of people who might come from Taiwan, People's Republic, in the broader Chinese diaspora, many of them are speaking Mandarin, okay? So you can mobilize, but they're effectively represented by almost innumerable cultures and ethnic backgrounds, right? So the outsider might say, like, oh, this is going to help Chinese churches grow. And I, as, a, as a researcher who's just present to diversity, I say, oh, what is the challenge for the Chinese church to affirm the oneness we see in Christ when we are such a diverse group of people? We are, we are representing how many different sub-ethnic groups, how many different sub-categories of linguistic capacity and translation. And I, like, it's just... And, and that's actually back to your research. That was part of your point. That, that the formation, the social formation of each person is so unique. And, and the stories, like the, the way that there, it's not just, let's just face it, the, the way you try to, if you stick with the measurement of stick in your congregation, you're going to lean towards the, the conservatism of that congregation. You're going right. to be discipled within that as, as far as possible. Right. But then when you have to engage everyone else in the world, which everyone else is doing, they're going to be influenced by all these different yep. different uh, social social uh, networks and stuff. Right, and and we are preparing people to live in this world. <laughs> yeah, to, to live for Christ. That's right. Which is that's maybe the part that you know if we're going to sort of go beyond my research and say, okay, so what? Yeah, that's right. What does this look like? That's one of the things that it was sort of just interesting to me that I I talked with so many people who who were part of the recalling and reclaiming of a sense of connection to ethnic identity, part of how I saw that operating in people. And I sort of frame this in my theory is saying like, effectively the only way to maintain in a pluralistic environment, the only way to maintain sort of really strong identity structures is, is when you can, a, you have to create walls around some of them. But then one of the things I argue is that when you're able to find really um, identity structures that work together, so I would say sort of like a form of evangelicalism that actually works fairly well with the Chinese Canadian subculture, when I'm able to join those two, that actually helps me have a stronger sense of well-being in the world. And that's not, that's not, I don't, I don't see that as bad. Like that's just the way we live in the world. That's uh, how we prevent and fight off the chaos that we experience but not everybody does that. Some people like lean have, you know, I just think of some people who that's, I mean, we were talking earlier, the people who will fully disengage, they'll just like pull the plug. You know, I live in Toronto. Why would I, why would I keep being Christian in this way? And why would I stay connected to a community that feels old fashioned to me? I'm not going to do that. I'm out, you know? And I know that that creates problems for me. My, you know, my parents don't, you know, they keep, it's like, why don't you come, you know, why don't, why aren't you here anymore? Like, I don't care. You know, like you said, I don't know how many people there are in that category, street, but anyways. Excellent questions. <laughs> and I right. think it is so timely for us, especially as you know, part of your research was also considering second generation and future generations and how they form their identities. And, and it's so interesting because I'm just wondering, what does it actually take to have that posture? I, 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 I'm hearing everything you're saying. And I'm just wondering why does it become so difficult? And maybe because 
there are certain traditions or some factors within organization or institutions or heritage that makes it, you know, more difficult. But it is, you know, it is such an important question to ask, like the questions you are asking, because, you know, it, it does go back to how do we live in this world as Christians and how do we engage others? And, you know, part of our podcast and part of all the conversation we've been on, I think, you know, this is going back to a question you kind of asked earlier, but in terms of like how we are finding where we are landing, and I think it's an ongoing cycle and process, is, is that, you know, part of it is being willing just to humbly learn, being willing not to just blindly adopt. And I think possibly because, you know, we've seen kind of the dangers of that in, in, in a lot of the things that have happened in Christian world. And, you know, being open and not afraid to deconstruct while holding on to that, like, you know, we also need to reconstruct and we also need to be working together to be finding this new identity. And perhaps that continues to change as culture changes, as our ethnic churches changes. And I think, you know, the, the things we've talking about in this episode is really important because as you're saying, you know, it's, and this throws it back to something you said very early. It's part of listening. It's part of that pastoral work. And, you know, how can we be better as both pastors, but also as Christians and as churches to be listening and to be waiting on God, to be surrendering to the spirits and to be able to have a posture of working this out together. And I think that's, oh man, there could be so much more said about that. And I feel like we, we just need to schedule another time to talk with you because, oh my goodness, there's just so much in there. But Scott, any last words for us as we are kind of wrapping up this episode? I know you have already kind of moved beyond your research to kind of giving some advice without giving advice. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm just excited to keep uh, learning from you guys because you just referenced something that sort of it mirrors what Brueggemann talks about, like disorientation, reorientation, um, that sort of spectrum of like transformation that has to happen in us. Yeah, and I wouldn't doubt if even some of your listeners, people, people will listen to you guys because they're in a process or in a place of deconstruction. And there is a certain, there's, that's actually part of the work of the spirit in the world is to confront and to uncover, to reveal. But then at, at some point you have to stop tearing things down and you have to decide what you're going to try to build in the world. Okay. And increasingly, and I think to be honest, I, I, maybe it's just like you get to a certain age Maybe that's what it is. It's just like lifespan. And you say, okay, I want to build something in the world. I don't want to be 65 and tearing things down. So then you make commitments and then, you know, sooner or later, you're going to have, somebody's going to come down and going to tear the thing you've built. <laughs> and that's the work of the spirit. It is the work of the spirit. The spirit empowers us to deconstruct and the spirit leads us in our attempts to build something in the world. So I, I imagine that's all of you guys. And it's so many of the people that are listening to you. And I, I just, I'm grateful and humble that uh, we get to chat about that. And just, just a quick note. I really like what you just said about like, you know, you, you built up something and at some point somebody's going to come and break it all down because that is so like poignant to like how we are observing and engaging of our time of a specific time. There's a context. Yeah. It's not just like a cultural context, but there's a, there's like a timing context. Like 
not everything is for all time, right? So <laughs> it's like, where's John Calvin's church now? Come on. Like, you know, like, we're, come on. Like, we, we are, okay, whatever. Yeah. Right. Down the street. What are you talking about? <laughs> right. This is, I mean, to the point of what you, yeah, it's just down the street. The, the work you're doing in your podcast, it seems to me, it's one of the things that I, I, I'm a champion for church planning, whatever that looks like, because every church has a, self, a shelf life. And I've used the same historical argument, too. Like the idea you can't, you can go to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. But that's not, or you can go to the ancient city of Ephesus, which is just a shell. Like this is where Paul gave three years of his life to help a church flourish. So the, the work of ebb and flow, and, and really then the call for us is to be faithful in our time, which is what you just said, Bernard. So anyway, I'm just, I mean, I'm honored to chat with you guys. I uh, really do champion. Good, like Good chat, man. <laughs> appreciate what, what you guys are doing. And uh, let's, yeah, let's do it again. I'd love to. All right. And thank you to everyone for listening to our episode today. There was so much to think about and to wrestle through, especially on this topic of sociology and what this perspective means for us. Hey, we want to hear what you guys think. You can reach us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or by email. Drop us a message. We'd love to hear how you are continuing to work through these ideas. Please remember to rate and review and subscribe to our podcast so that we can continue to get this conversation out there. Once again, you've been listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and we hope you'll join us on this journey. See you next time. Peace.